Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Matina Cham. On today's podcast, we have Dr. Nimata Blyden, an Associate Professor of History and International Affairs at the George Washington University. Dr. Blyden is on to discuss her new book, African Americans and Africa, A New History, which came out with Yale University Press in 2019. Dr. Blyden, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on today. And I'm very honored to be on. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to our conversation. So, yeah, let's let's jump in. Um, I was wondering if you could begin by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself, about your background, and how you came to be a historian. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit about my personal background, I'm sure, uh, over the course of the discussion on the book. But um, just a quick family background is that I come from a diaspora background, so to speak. I have an African father, an African-American mother, more complicated, as you'll see as we go along. But um, also come from a lineage that has ancestry in the Virgin Islands. Some people will recognize the last name Blyden and will connect me to Edward Wilmot Blyden, who, of course, was my great-grandfather. So I grew up with a rich family history, uh, stories at at the dining room table about our famous ancestor, about diaspora history. My father was involved in the nationalist movement in Sierra Leone. So our way of life was about the history of not only our family, but about Black people, African-descended people. So I suppose it was in some way inevitable that I would become a historian. I was going to go to law school. When I was in college, I majored in international relations, and I was going to go to college until my junior year when I took a wonderful class on Native American history. At the same time, I was taking an African history class and fell in love with um, the subject, really, more so than I had ever been and decided to change my major and become a history major and to go to graduate school. I never knew this was the story of how you ended up actually (laughs) uh, going into history graduate school. And can you tell us more about your graduate school experience? Where did you go to graduate school? Who were your mentors? What were kind of the influences that pushed you in the direction that you took then in grad school? Mm -hmm. So I went to Yale University uh, for graduate school. My main advisor was Professor Robert Harms, a historian of um, Africa, and has written a book also on the slave trade. And uh, But I had many mentors uh, outside of the university, I suppose. My biggest mentor was the esteemed historian Christopher Fife, who was, uh, is probably the preeminent historian of Sierra Leone and uh, written, you know, the big tome on the history of Sierra Leone, but, you know, had been a family friend, somebody I had communicated with, and he ended up really being my biggest mentor. When I was writing my dissertation, I would send him chapters, he would read and give me feedback. Um, And, you know, so it was nice to have that kind of mentorship, and I maintained contact with 
my undergraduate advisor, Dr. Eugenia Herbert. She continued to be my mentor. So graduate school was an interesting um, place. It was hard. Um, and, you know, Yale, at the time I went there, which was the late 1980s, was not necessarily known for its African history. So it was a hodgepodge of picking uh, classes in different departments, uh, political science. I did an independent study with Professor William Foltz, who um, did Africa. I took some anthropology classes in addition to the history classes. Uh, David Brian Davis, um, who passed away recently, was one of my advisors. I did an independent with him, and he served on my dissertation committee. So I was able to pick on people outside of the field of African history and outside of the field of African diaspora history for my methodological approaches, for the way I thought about history. Um, so it was good for that more than anything, not so much in the classes that I took. Yeah, and it makes for much richer research and approach to the, to the subject, I imagine. Absolutely. Um, in the end, in your first book, your previous book, you focused on the migrations of West Indians to Africa in the 19th century. Um, in that book, you had looked at the, the migrations of people from Jamaica, from Dominica, from Trinidad, and other Caribbean nations towards Sierra Leone in the decades that had followed the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. This time, in your new book, you switch from focusing on West Indians to looking at African-Americans and their relationship with the African continent. And I was curious if you could tell us more about what that process was like and what that shift was like from moving from one African diaspora from the West Indies and the Caribbean to another one, the United States, in looking at their relationship with the continent. Mm -hmm. um, there were different stories, but similar, I think. I think anybody who knows my work knows that most of it has focused on the connection between Africa and its diaspora. Uh, the first book was in some ways looking at the connections between the Caribbean and Africa, specifically Sierra Leone. Um, and it, you know, looked at it from, of course, the lens of the empire and the British colonial administration, but also engaged the same kinds of questions of identity, connection to an engagement with Africa. Uh, so it was a different lens, perhaps a more narrow lens. Um, because I did focus on these administrators. Um, but I did try to look the, at the broader so, um, social history, if you will, of West Indians and Sierra Leone also. So it engaged the same sort of questions of the connections between um, a diaspora population and the continent of, of Africa. So though, they were, though they're different in terms of regions, I, I think I would argue uh, very similar in terms of the issues and the themes that, it, that they engaged. All right. And one thing that one theme that you do bring up sort of earlier early on in the book and unpack is the long history and the evolution of the label that black people in the United States have used to describe themselves and also that other people have used to describe them. Can you walk us through a little bit uh through that through that evolution and that history of these labels? Absolutely. So, my mother will be 92 next week, as a matter of fact, on Tuesday. And um, in her lifetime, she has been a Negro. She has been colored. She has been uh, Afro-American. She has been Black. 
And now at the age of 92, she's African-American, among other things. Um, And so the book, as people will see when they read it, does delve into these many names and different labels that have been used to identify Black Americans over the centuries from slavery, where the language, of course, that was used to describe slaves varied, uh, to uh, to free people and how they chose to identify themselves. And so we see these labels changing um, and Black Americans trying to claim these labels for themselves. And for this book, of course, I was interested in how the label of Africa or African fit into that story. And we know that it wasn't always possible for people to lay claim to the labels that they wanted for themselves, right? So, you know, we might call ourselves African-American all we want, but somebody might choose to call us something different. Um, And that's sort of the story of the ways in which as African-Americans try to make their way in this society, they also try to lay claim to an identity. And I'm interested in this book, of course, in exploring how Africa fit into that. And we see throughout the centuries that Africa was always present um, in this um, engagement in terms of naming for some, where, as I say in the book, from the, starting from the 18th century, African-Americans, particularly free African-Americans, chose to uh, use the label Africa or African in their institutions, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the African Lodge. Um, that, that gets dropped, of course, uh, over the centuries. The Africa gets dropped as Africa comes to be associated with something that African-Americans want to shy away from, right, in their bid to Uh, be accepted and to be included um, in this country uh, um, for the many contributions that they've made, some African-Americans felt that dropping the Africa or the African was useful or was important for engaging with um, the United States. And I, you know, I talk about even in the contemporary period where there are people who say, don't call me an African-American I'm don't call me an African. I'm an I'm an oh, don't call me an African American. True, uh, I'm American. So this is the story that I talk about in in that chapter and looking at the way that this labels uh, and how we name ourselves uh, figures. And I'm glad that you talk about this evolution through time because it also really shows what's one of the great strengths of the book is the incredibly long time period that you consider. And how much things change because, you know, the context around it also does change. Um, And we're going to talk about all of this and we're going to dive into the many characters and the many stories that your book really brings to life. Um, And I'm very happy since you just mentioned your mother. Also, happy happy early birthday to your mother. It's coming up. Um, You actually opened the book with the encounter of a couple. Uh, their names are Amelia Elizabeth Kendrick and Edward Wilmot, Wilmot Blyden III, and these two are your parents. Can you introduce our listeners to Amelia and Edward, your parents, um, and explain why it was important for you to open the book with their story? Mm-hmm. So as I said before, when I said that my father was African, but it's a more complicated story than that, Edward Wilmot Blyden III, who was my father, uh, was the grandson of the great Edward Wilmot Lydon I, who most people probably are familiar with, who do African diaspora or African history work. And that Edward Lydon was, of course, born in the Caribbean. Um, he was in diaspora as a result of the slave trade, as most people of African descent were. And he was part of the movement of 
diasporan Blacks who chose to, quote unquote, go back to Africa. And at the age of 18, he settled in Liberia. Uh, and this is, of course, how my father comes to be African, because he then moves to Sierra Leone at the end of his life. And my father was born in Sierra Leone. So that's my African father's story. And so my father grew up um, not knowing his grandfather because his grandfather had passed away. He was raised by his grandmother and his mother. My grandmother was the daughter of Edward Wilmot Blyden. So our Blyden line is actually a maternal line. And um, he grew up listening to stories about his grandfather. And when he um, was of college age, he came to study in the United States. He studied at Lincoln University, which is a historically black college in Pennsylvania. And he did his PhD at Harvard University. And it was while he was a graduate student at Harvard University that he traveled down to Atlantic City, New Jersey. And of course, Atlantic City, New Jersey was different from what it is now. He went, um, I think he had been ill, at least the anecdote in our families, he had been ill and he went to recuperate in Atlantic City. But he met there at a church, a young woman by the name of Amelia Kendrick, who was my mother. And my mother grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. um, And she went to Boston University. She got her degree in music at Boston University. And the first job that she got out of college was to desegregate a school in Atlantic City. And of course, those who know the history of America know the story of segregation. And we associate it with the South, but the North was also very segregated. And so my mother was hired to desegregate a school in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And my parents met in a church, as I begin the book with. They met at a church, and um, that was the story of this encounter between this quote-unquote African man and an African-American woman. Uh, They went on, as I say, to have us, their seven children, and my mother. They married, uh, my mother moved and lived her life in Africa for a long period of time. That's really an incredible story because, well, first of all, it's really the story of, you know, a Black Atlantic family, if there ever was one. Um, And also it really shows you, which is a theme that comes back and back in your book, the fluidity of all these identities. and how people kept moving and exchanging and maintaining connections um, from the beginning, really, from really early on. Uh, so I guess let's 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 just dive into that. Like, let's go back and rewind because, as I said, your book covers a really long time period, um, starting in the 17th century and even before. You cover um, some of the main developments that were going on, on the, in the African continent. Um, so let's try to go back a little bit and rewind in time. Can you tell us a bit more in broad terms? I realize I'm asking a big questions about who were these Africans um, who became enslaved throughout the Americas, but in the United States also, what would become the United States in particular? Where were they coming from? What were the estimates as to their numbers? And what do we know about them? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not a historian of the slave trade, so I preface it with that. Um, And the historiography on the slave trade, of course, has expanded immensely, even in the almost 30 years since I've been teaching, so that what we can tell our students about those Africans or those people from the continent of Africa that were enslaved um, 
is much more significant now than, say, when I was in college. And so uh, we thank those scholars who've been working on the slave trade. And so the basic contours of how I talk about those who were taken uh, as enslaved in Africa, who ended up in the Americas or who might have ended up in the United States, of course, from that West African coast, right? From, as we say, from Mali down to Angola is, is how I talk about it when I teach my class. Of course, scholars are still arguing about numbers. 12 to 15 million uh, is the mo- number that most uh, gets bandied about. And and I you know and you know you've pulled out the teacher in me because you know when I'm teaching my students I say you know whether it's twelve million it's ten million it's two million it's five million we've seen many of these numbers over the century of the you know the decades of studying the slave trade if we think about it from the perspective of who gets enslaved um, the individual that gets enslaved does it you know let's not fight over the numbers in a way is the way I try to think about it and. And that's why, you know, in the book, I try to uh, use uh, voices, and I do so largely through fiction, obviously. Um, uh, um, you know, the chapter, I try to keep their voices in my head is told from the perspective of a young girl who's being enslaved. You know, when she's being enslaved, she tells the story of those around her who were enslaved, um, those that small number uh, of people that she developed relationships with. That's a more important story for me in many ways. And that's not to say that 15 million is not much more significant than 2 million, but thinking about it from the perspective of those who were enslaved is is quite significant for me. And then where they ended up, uh, was it Brazil? Was it the Caribbean islands? Was it the United States? Um, and what that meant, uh, what it meant for you to be enslaved in Brazil versus the United States. I, of course, have focused on those who were enslaved in the United States and the trajectory of those lives. So I'm not sure that that really answers the question, but that's how I like to think about the slave trade and its consequences for people of African descent in the Americas. Yes, you really did answer in a few minutes a question that many, many books have been written about. Um, So thank you, Dr. Blyden. And since specifically you were talking about what that meant to be enslaved, I want to go and zoom in to these Africans who arrived in Virginia in the 17th century, in 1619, and that's something that has been documented a bit, at least a bit better than other arrivals. Can you tell us more about that moment and in the few decades that follow? Something that you show really well in the book is how this was actually a moment where you know, slavery hadn't been quite codified into law yet. And so there were a lot of possibilities as to legally who these people were, who these people might become, and how that was affecting also their life and their status in Virginia. Absolutely. So again, prefacing it with the idea that I'm not a historian of of American slavery, but the 1619 has been really interesting. And it's been, I'm very glad that I, I, um, finished the book before 2019 and that it came out in 2019 because it was that anniversary, that big anniversary that we were celebrating. And so my book raised all sorts of questions for people who were interested in, in that history. And, you know, what those scholars who studied the, the first African-Americans or the first Africans who landed in Jamestown in 1619 has been this question of who were they? Were they enslaved? Were they free? 
were they indentured servants, right? And, but it becomes quite clear soon enough, as I outline in the book, that these people are regarded as different from any other person in servitude in Virginia at that time. And it was clearly connected to their African ancestry, right? So that law that we say that we usually point to that codifies slavery in Virginia of the, the indentured servants running away with the, with the black man. Um, and then when they're caught and punished, he's punished with perpetual servitude while they just get um, terms added on to their indenture. Makes it quite clear that right from the beginning, these people are, are considered different, whether or not they were called slaves or they were enslaved or not. And so that's, for me, the important way of thinking about how Africa figures in the story, I suppose, because really that's what I'm trying to do with all these stories I told is how Africa figures. And it's his African ancestry, right, that makes for his, his being codified in law as uh, in perpetual servitude versus the, the European indentured servants. Right. And as we progress into, you know, the 17th century, later parts of the century, um, it becomes increasingly clear there's this switch that occurs, as you say, that indeed um, this racialized status and being of African descent um, is really what ends up solidifying racial slavery um, as a full part of American life by the 18th century. Um, and so to go back to go back to the main theme of the book, um, I guess, for these, for these people who are enslaved in the 18th century, including people who were born in America and people who were born in Africa, can you give us a sense of where the com- continent factors in, you know, their perception of themselves, their perception of their situation, and also their, their desires and aspiration? Like, where is Africa and how do they consider Africa in all of this? And I hope it comes across, but what I try to get across with, with looking at that period in history is to show how Africa prefigured in, in Black American life, well, right from the beginning, right, whether we're talking about those who were enslaved directly from Africa, who come with tangible elements of Africa, memories, things that they came directly from the continent with. And so in contrast, right, to that old historiography, which used to tell us that the slave trade was so brutalizing, it completely, you know, deculturalized Africans. We know that that's not true. So these were people who came with tangible elements. By the time that you get into uh, a period where they're uh, black Americans now born on this continent in the United States, Africa becomes a little bit more uh, um in their distant past, right? So now the stories that they're hearing of Africa are being passed down, right? So how they come to understand Africa is very different from those who came with Africa, so to speak, those who were born in Africa, right? And so by the time you get into the 18th and the early 19th century, the relationship to Africa is much more complex with those who again, have memories of it, depending on locality, where they are, are they enslaved, are they free? Uh, um, what their personal situation is, Africa figures in different ways. And we see it in the ways in which people, as I said earlier, latch on to the label Africa, into the cultural elements of Africa that persist, um, you know, the the cuisines, uh, um, the religious practices, cultural practices. So we see these various ways. But you also begin to see the ways in which Africa 
begins to be seen as alien. I quote Phyllis Wheatley, right, who says, you know, um, in some ways that she was thankful to have been enslaved because she it allowed her access to Christianity. So you have a population or a class of Black Americans who see uh, um, their uh, uh, transformation as a positive one, and so the distance that uh, you know the, the the distance between them and Africa is seen is welcomed, if you will. So you have these various ways that African-Americans are engaging with Africa beginning in the late 18th and into the 19th century, particularly for those who are American-born. All of this within a context where Africa uh, is represented in these very negative and stereotypical ways and continues to be, of course, as we move into the 19th and even into the 20th century. Uh, And if, if something that you want to latch onto, if you will, is represented constantly as a negative, why would you want to, uh, right? So in my talks, I, I tell stories about, you know, when I was in college, my first sort of encounter with African-Americans outside of my mother's family were with Black students um, on my college campus. I went to a predominantly white college in Western Massachusetts where there were Black students who were from the continent, but they were also African-American students. And uh, these were two separate communities, and me sort of being an in-between type of person engage, was able to engage with both those communities and to see really how different these communities were in their engagement with each other. And one of the things that I saw was this idea that uh, you know African American that many of the African American students distanced themselves from from their African ancestry because it was presented to them as a negative thing, and you know that. That was something I think that began uh, in the 18th and the 19th century and continued. And as we enter into the 19th century, what you just talked about, these differences in the way people perceive, you know, perceive the continent um, and how it shapes their, re- shapes their response and how they define their relationship to the continent, um, these ideas turn into even fierce debates in the 19th century. Um, and there are many ideas that emerge around, you know, emigration and colonization, um, but also opposition to that and people saying, no, we don't, we, we have no reason to engage with this continent. This is not, you know, this is not where we're from or who we are. So can you just give us a little bit of a, a taste of these kind of debates that emerge into the, the 19th century around these specific ideas of colonization, of immigration, repatriation, et cetera? Right. So, of course, the late 19th and 18th century is this era where, it's, well, it's the era of abolition. The abolitionist uh, movement is, is picking up and, and taking, uh, t- uh, you know, taking on the, uh, the institution of, of slavery. And it's also a period when many Americans, both black and white, but particularly white Americans, are beginning to feel threatened by the growing free black population. By this time, of course, the North has abolished slavery. So there's a thriving free black population, which many see as, if not a threat to slavery, certainly see it as interfering with slavery. And so the colonization movement really emerges from this idea that, well, free black Americans will not get a fair shake in this country. Perhaps they should leave and go somewhere else. And it's very important to talk about the emigration movement or the, or the colonization movement as something that white Americans latch onto uh, um, for the 
particularly targeting free blacks, right? So they're not trying to get rid of all blacks from this from this country, just free blacks. And so the colonization the colonization movement, uh, um, you know, begins this de- debate about. Uh, uh, um, free black Americans leaving the country. And of course, Africa, because it's seen to be the homeland of people of African descent in this country, is the logical place. And so we see the the colonization and the emigration of black Americans to Liberia, to Sierra Leone. Uh, but there is a, a, a fierce opposition to it. So the colonization movement is, is significant, not necessarily in terms of numbers, but for what it represents about how many black Americans felt that they had they couldn't have a, a, a fair uh, shake in this country. They were getting a raw deal, and perhaps they should leave. But many more African Americans were opposed to emigration and colonization. Uh, David Walker, uh, as early as 1829, is somebody who claimed his, his African heritage proudly, labeled himself an African, but was uh, vociferously opposed to emigration and colonization. Frederick Douglass very much opposed to colonization. So these debates about colonization had to do in some ways with Africa, but for some, uh, but for others, it was this question of this is our country. America is our country. We've built it with our blood, sweat, and tears, and we deserve to be here. Uh, And we're not going anywhere, right? This was the anti-emigration, anti-colonization point of view um, that was subscribed to by most African Americans, uh, but many felt that um, they would not uh, be equal. They would not be received as uh, um, citizens of this country, and so they looked to Africa. I would like you to tell us specifically. There was one story that I thought was fascinating. In this chapter is the story of George Erkine and his family. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this specific character, this group of people, and I guess how, you know, their journey, both leaving, leaving the United States, but also, and also on the continent, kind of came to represent like a certain, you know, a certain tra- trajectory that at least some people take uh, in that moment and decided to go back to the continent. Yes. And uh, George Eskin, by the way, is an ancestor of mine. Um, uh, it's not very clear in the book, I think, but it, again, this this idea of identity and who you are becomes an interesting part of the story. But George Erskine was a man who was born a slave in Tennessee. He was at some point freed. He received his freedom uh, to uh, white humanitarians, actually bought him out of slavery. And he once he became emancipated, he traveled around the country as an itinerary preacher, raising money to free his family from slavery. He succeeds in doing so, and once the last, essentially, once the last person, if you will, is bought, they get on a ship and travel to Liberia, where within a year of arriving, most of the family is dead, only two children survive. But what George Erskine, I think, represents for me is this story of a Black family who felt that they had no option. Uh, in staying in the United States, right? And, you know, those who study slavery have argued, for example, if you look at Tennessee, that slavery in Tennessee was probably not as, was, you know, a lot less harsh. It was not as uh, uh, cruel as perhaps it was in somewhere further south, et cetera, et cetera. But here's a a man who chooses to leave um, because he doesn't feel as if he will have an equal opportunity and he wants a better life for himself and for his children, 
But George Erskine also goes out um, as a sort of a missionary. So many Black Americans who do uh, emigrate see themselves as missionaries to Africa. They believe that they can bring back. So this notion of we were enslaved, a divine providence, we were enslaved for a reason. And that was to give us Christianity and civilization, however defined, so we could bring that back to our brothers and sisters in Africa. And George Erskine certainly fits that bill. But first and foremost, he's a father who wants a better life for his children. And he does not see that happening in the United States. And so he takes his family to Africa where, you know, they leave a known for an unknown. Um, But it's, you know, he, he sort of rather does that than stay here where he would face the indignities of even living as a free person in a slave in a slave state. And once in Africa, of course, in the case of the Erskins, but also of other people who then reach the continent, including these missionaries that you talk about. Um, as you said, you leave a known for an unknown, and therefore a lot of things happen that, you know, did not necessarily fit what they were expecting. And also something that you like I, you did really well in the book is showing how throughout um what africa is and what africa represents and um how a lot of these people expect to intervene into africa um follows kind of like a certain benevolent thinking about going into there to help you know to to be missionaries or to civilize so can you talk a little bit more about that um what is africa and and you know in addition to leaving in order to create a better life, what is the project that a lot of these people have for Africa in particular? I mean, it's largely, it's a missionary project. So I tell my students when I talk about the immigration story is that every single African-American who goes thinks of himself or herself as a missionary of sorts. Um, there's a volume or lots of literature on those who went to Liberia sort of writing back to family members and to even former. Uh, slave owners in the United States, letters. It's a, it's a, a you know, a, com- a compendium of, of letters of these settlers. And it's so interesting to, to read these letters because these are people who themselves are barely literate. The, uh, maybe some of them were formerly enslaved. They can barely write. And they're writing back about, you know, their role in civilizing and Christianizing Africans, you know, so they're spelling civilized all sorts of strange ways, right? Can barely spell, can barely write, are barely literate, but see themselves as missionaries because they had had this opportunity to have been exposed to Christianity in the United States. And, you know, I suppose it was kind of, you could argue it was a a way for them to explain their bondage. That's how I tend to think about it. How else do you explain having gone through enslavement? except by, you know, saying, well, this is what it gave to us. This is what, these are the benefits it, that accrued from, from this experience, Christianity and civilization. And so that's what these settlers go back with, even when they're not formal missionaries, right, is this idea of uplift for the continent. And it's tied, of course, into how Africa is viewed or how Africa has been presented to them. It has been presented to them as savages, backward, as missionary as um, you know, uh, um, uh, um, sa- you know, savage needing uplift, right? And so they 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 go back with this idea of this place uh, that's the land of their ancestors that needs uplift, an uplift in the form of civilization and and first and foremost Christianity. Every single one of them does. Now, many of them once they're there recognize that they've been sold a bill of goods, 
and you know their perspectives change but you know for many no and you know the story of Liberia um is one that shows us that story to some extent and a lot of these missionaries were women yes more than what i expected actually <laughs> so yeah is, is can you talk to us a little bit more about you know the names and the profiles of some of these women what we mm -hmm. know about them mm -hmm. and what was also peculiar about their experience as a result of being women, female missionaries. Right. And so I talk about a few, like Emma Delaney is one, and she's the one, I think, who adopts uh, a young African man and raises him as her children. So uh, the, the, the idea of, you know, this was a book that, it's when you're writing African history, as you well know, African-American history, telling the stories of women is very hard. You have to dig deep. I, you know, I mentioned one woman in my first book who was very tangential to the story, but I couldn't envision writing a 300-page book without mentioning one woman. Uh, which could have been done. Uh, and so for this book, I really wanted to tell the stories of women. And these women missionaries are uh, a, a very interesting case study because, uh, again, many of them, unlike European missionary women, uh, don't go out there with husbands. They go as single women. Uh, many of them come out of uh, a place like Spelman and go out as, as, as single missionaries. And they go, I think, with the same sort of sensibilities as their male and even their European counterparts of, of uplift, right? But through them, we get a sense perhaps more of uh, the stories of African women. And I think it's for that that I like to, I wanted to profile the Black American female missionaries because their concerns were often with African women and we could, from their stories, Uh, um, you know, extrapolate something about African women's lives as well. Um, and, you know, then you begin to wonder, boy, how strange that m must have been for them to go out there often on their own to a strange place, a place that had been, you know, portrayed or represented to them as, you know, this savage place and backward place. Uh, um, but it, it speaks to, again, this idea that as children of this continent or as descendants of this continent, it was their obligation to, to uplift it and to bring back something positive that they feel that they felt they had gotten from their experience in the United States. Right. And, you know, as, as we move towards the end of the 19th century, Africa itself, the vast majority of the continent comes under colonial rule which really shapes, again, these discourses about Africa needing to be safe, being uh, saved, being backwards, um, that are reappropriated re by you know, some of the Black settlers who are there. But another phenomenon you see at the same time is that you also have an increasing number of Africans in the United States, especially towards the end, at, the, at the end of the century and early 20th century, uh, who go there to study for the most part. Um, can you tell us more about Who are these people, these Africans who go to the United States, uh, are there in colleges in that early period? Um, and, and you mentioned it a little bit, of course, um, with the, the story of your father later on. Um, and how that also shifts all these perceptions that are traveling around the Atlantic as people are traveling around the Atlantic. Absolutely. So in the beginning of the late 19th century, you begin to see small numbers of Africans coming to the United States. As a matter of fact, the project that I was working on before I wrote this book was a book looking at Africans in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century and sort of thinking about them or constructing them, if you will, as immigrants, because we don't hear that story very much. But they begin to come as students. Some of them stay. 
uh, move into other avenues, move into other lives. Um, and, you know, they're coming into a society that's uh, operating under segregation. Jim Crow is still operating. And so many of these get subsumed under the category of Negro, right? They just become uh, Negroes, Black, you know, Black Americans. Much distinction is not made, um, certainly not by white Americans. But they're mostly living among Black Americans. They're marrying Black Americans even as early as the late 19th and early 20th century before my, you know, my parents meet later on in the century um, and living among, among African Americans. So it's this interesting way to talk about, well, what kind of conversations emerged out of this, right? Uh, for the first time, African Americans are, many African Americans are encountering Africans. They're getting stories about Africa directly from Africans, right? So they're beginning to understand that perhaps the Africa that has been represented to them is not uh, the real, quote unquote, Africa, whatever that might mean. But it's also problematic because many of these Africans who are coming are also coming from the colonial space that has educated them within missionary schools, right? Within colonial schools where they too, right? have adopted attitudes of Africa needing uplift, right? Or Africa needing to be Christian. So I argue that in some ways, some of these Africans who came were not very different from African-Americans in their views of what Africa needed in terms of uplift, certainly in the, in the late 19th century. So it's a very interesting kind of way to think about, you know, somebody like, oh, I don't know, Joseph, um, James Agri, who I talk about, who comes from the Gold Coast, has been educated largely in missionary schools and comes to here, uh, to the United States, marries an African-American woman. His ideas about Christianity um, and the need for African uplift are not going to be very different from any of his college mates or his contemporaries who are African-Americans, right? Um, but Africans are also coming, um, educating African-Americans and Americans in general about Africa, right? And we can argue about what, Afri what Africa that is. Is it, a, is it a constructed Africa? Is it an Africa that they want to represent, right? So you have this other layer of how Africans themselves are representing their continent. You know, yeah, reading this, it really reminded me actually of, you know, even contemporary discussions and debates, because you see these elite Africans talking about the real Africa, just like today you have people talking about oh, this is the Africa they don't show us, show you in the news, and they show all these really shiny portrayals of Africa. But, you know, all these Africas are true. Um, and for sure, that's, that's something that comes through really well, that um, both, you know, with the discourse of Black settlers who go back to Africa or African elites who study in the United States, there is this idea of an Africa needing to be saved um, in some way. Um, and... As we progress into the 20th century, um, the, the, the overall context also changes, um, especially with the emergence of a, uh, of a stronger anti-colonial movement, uh, stronger Black solidarities and Black international movement. You see slowly that discourse changing and you see some voices also trying to change this negative portrayal, including in the arts with the Harlem Renaissance. So can you talk a bit more about how things change in this kind of crazy period of the 20th century where all these struggles are emerging and people want to seize back that narrative in a way? 
Yes. And there's definitely much more interaction in the 20th century between African descended people in the diaspora, between Africans and African-Americans with this movement of African students, African-Americans in the early 20th century are having the opportunity uh, some to go to the continent. So there's much more um, knowledge production, I suppose we would call it today, about about Africa. But again, about different kinds of of Africa, I would argue, right? So the the the, the Africa that 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 the African who's coming to study here is talking about is different from the Africa the African American is talking about. It's certainly different from the you know Africa, say, of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, you know, cultural productions, right? One of the people that I talk about in the book is this. Um, dancer, Asadata Dafora Horton, who's a very interesting character. He's from Sierra Leone, comes from a very prominent elite uh, family in Sierra Leone, who comes to study and then ends up being a dancer and starts his own dance company. And it's fascinating to read about his productions because he does these quote-unquote African productions. So if you read, for example, a transcript of a play that he puts on on Broadway, um, where he's using, you know, African languages and he's, you know, the, the names, uh, are African names of his characters. But it's a mishmash. They're not necessarily recognizable as Sierra Leonean names because the community from which he comes from is a very westernized Sierra Leone community where the names are John, William, David names um, and, you know, maybe of some Yoruba names. But the names of his characters, he's pulled from various parts of the African continent, some perhaps even made up. Right. So that but that's a representation of Africa from a quote unquote African perspective. Uh, um, but it's it's problematic. It's complex because it's 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 kind of like, you know, Wakanda. Right. Where when we talk about the, the Black Panther and the way that Wakanda was represented, it's this mishmash. Right. Of in so many Africans, for example, were quite distressed about the representation of Africa in Wakanda, right? It's a diaspora representation of Africa. And in some ways, that's what we were getting in the early 20th century uh, um, from many of these of these people. Um, everybody came with their own Africa and they had an Africa they wanted represented. Oh, for sure. It's 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 yeah, it's really interesting how these things continue up to today. Like you see all these representations. Yeah. Uh, and those are fierce, fierce debates that you see, like even today, like, you know, on the internet, because people talk uh, and there's a lot of exchange and, you know, you see everybody trying to seize and represent their own idea of what Africa should be and how it should be portrayed and, and represented. Um, there was, there was one couple uh, in particular in that, in that chapter when you move into the 20th century that I wanted us to spend a little bit of time talking about. Um, and that's Paul and Elanda Robson, because I think their trajectories, respective trajectories also represent a lot of um, how ideas about Africa and about the black movement in general came to circulate um, in that period, you know, transiting through London, transiting to, through Ghana and the United States. So can you talk about this couple in particular and what they did and also the ideas that they carried uh, and how those circulated at that moment across the Atlantic in many different places across the Atlantic. Right. Of course, Paul Robeson is most known to Americans, although I'm always saddened when I ask my students if they know who Paul Robeson is and they don't, um, is most well known as an actor and a singer, 
a very famous actor and a singer, but um, fewer people, although there's been lots written on Paul Robeson, much more than I, I know, um, about his activism on behalf of African-descended people, but particularly on behalf of Africa through the Council on African Affairs, which he was a co-founder of. Um, and this notion of discovering Africa, as I think I use a quote in the book, he says something like, I discovered Africa in Europe. He discovered Africa in London, meeting people like Jomo Kenyatta, meeting Africans who, of course, were there were many more Africans studying in England um, because it was the you know a colonial power at the time, so he discovers Africa in that way and becomes this champion of of African issues in the in the 1930s and 1940s. And his wife was just as as famous as he was. And there's a wonderful book written by uh, Barbara Ransby about Eslanda Robson. Also takes this very uh, um, significant interest in in Africa. And she actually, unlike Paul traveled extensively in Africa and wrote about um, her, this journey through Africa. Uh, in, in, and, you know, in, and in thinking about her, she in particular, in thinking about her connection to Africa, what is my connection to Africa? Uh, a central question surrounding much of what this book is about is that question that African-Americans have asked themselves over the century of what is Africa to me, right? And each has answered it in his or her own different way. And Islanda, she goes through that journey, asks herself that that question. So they become this very activist um, couple on behalf of Africa um, with uh, uh, engagement with the continent itself, with African people, and with also with other African Americans at that, at that time. So very significant for the story of talking about the relationship between African Americans and Africa is the story of the Robesons. In the late 1950s and in the 60s, as African countries gain independence, you see also a shift in um, the way a lot of African-Americans engage in the continent. Um, you talk about in the book that um, about the rise of many Africa-related interest groups um, in this era who you know, come to talk as experts about a number of different issues. Um, and also something that comes through is that there are... I mean, the, the continent, many countries in the continent gain independence, but some countries come to acquire this sort of like special status because they build longer lasting relationships. I'm thinking about Ghana, uh, Guinea, of course, um, under Sekouture, but also South Africa that's still not liberated and so attracts a lot of attention, of course, from um, people in America. So can you tell, talk a little bit more about that specific era of uh, independence and the decades that follow and the forms of engagement with the continent that emerge in that era. Yeah. And so that was perhaps one of the harder chapters to write because, you know, I consider myself a 19th century historian more than a, than a 20th century historian. But the way I tried to understand that period of the 1950s and 1960s to sort of tie in um, African Amer the story of African Americans and, and Africa and that relationship is to see the ways in which um, you know African Americans for centuries had sort of been arguably the sort of big brother big sister had taken on the big brother big sister role right in terms of its relationship to Africa and for the first time in the late fifties and early sixties as African countries begin to gain their independence in many ways Africa has now um, you know. 
outpaced, if you will, I'm not sure that's the right word, outpaced African-Americans in terms of, you know, uh, civil rights and uh, independence, etc. And um, so for the first time, African-Americans in some ways are beginning to fit, ask the question, well, where, where do we fit in, if you will? right? With, with respect to Africa. And so the kind of engagement that African-Americans have with Africa changes from that big brother one to a large extent in, the, in that period, I would argue, of now sort of being champions of Africa, being lobbyists for Africa in their own country, not so much the, you know, taking on the role of responsibility for Africa, right? Because Africans have now taken on that, that role. Well, Dr. Blyden, I've taken you far into the 20th century and also taken up a lot of your time today. Um, so we'll begin to wrap up. And, you know, there's more that the book covers in the, in the final portions, in the, in the last chapter in the epilogue as well, coming into the contemporary era and a lot of discussions that we see now happening today. So it's really a fantastic book just in the, you know, the breadth and the length um, that you go to really show the evolution of uh, this idea of Africa and this relationship with Africa from the 17th century onwards. I really recommend to everyone who hasn't gotten their hands on the book yet, um, which is a lot of people. I think you you sold several thousand copies officially by now on the book. Yes. So congratulations on that. And really, I I would like to urge everyone who hasn't already to... um, get their hands on the book. So again, this is Nimata Blyden, African-Americans and Africa, A New History, which was published by Yale University Press in 2019. And before the clo- we close the podcast, I just want to ask you, Dr. Blyden, what are you working on now? Uh, so um, my next project, as I'm envisioning it, I'm calling it a sort of a family biography. I've talked a lot about my family in this interview And it's not really a story of my family so much as the places in which they live. So through telling um, the stories of of people in my family, I also would like to tell the story of various places. So I can, unlike many African-descended people in our family, we can date our, we can trace our family back to the late 18th century. We can trace them to 1719 ancestors on a small island called St. Eustatius in the Caribbean to, as I said before, George Erskine in Tennessee. Um, And so in telling those stories and also telling a diaspora uh, and an African story um, through the centuries of uh, identity, of uh, um, slavery, of emancipation, um, of freedom, um, in these various spaces in the Caribbean, the United States, and in Africa. And so it's in my head, I see it, it's, it's nebulous um, as I describe it, but it's a story, I call it a sort of a biography of a, of a diaspora family is, um, is how I envision it. That sounds really incredible. Um, I cannot wait to see where this, where this project will go. Um, to read it, hopefully, and also I hope you'll be back on the show once this book is out to discuss it again uh, and share it with us and, and, and sharing your family with us, which, you know, um, we really appreciate you doing. Thank you very much, Dr. Blyden, for coming on the show today. And thank you for having me, Medina. <laughs>